I'm so glad that you're here. I'm so glad that we can be in God's Word and we can approach God's Word this morning. And I hope that you'll do that with me as we are getting uh, into this chapter, Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Uh, this chapter, I'm going to give you a little bit of inside baseball, so to speak, as we start this sermon. A little inside baseball, insights into uh, maybe a little bit of my process, I don't know. As I approach the scriptures, uh, Natalie can vouch for this, whenever I'm coming up to a, a passage that I know is going to be difficult to preach, I know I'll come home and I'll tell her, it didn't happen yet. <laughs> it didn't happen yet. And they're usually, through the course of my study, uh, through the course of intense reading or just Letting the scriptures soak into me. Sometimes I'll, be, I'll come home and I'll be like, aha, there was like an eureka moment. Uh, the Holy Spirit spoke to me and I know exactly how I'm going to approach this passage. Uh, and sometimes that happens uh, closer to Sunday than I want it to. Uh, and it's just depending on the passage, depending, I, I think, on my, my study and preparation. And this is one of those passages where it took a lot out of me. I've been reading this chapter for a couple of weeks. Uh, and I say that because chapter 10, I would say, is probably one of the hardest chapters to read in Ecclesiastes and come away with and think, aha, I know exactly what Solomon is saying. You read this chapter, it's 20 verses of seemingly disconnected proverbs. Just thoughts Seemingly random truths that Solomon is putting here in this chapter. And because of that sort of detachment, that sort of disconnectedness, it can almost feel like this is just like a miscellaneous chapter. Where Solomon has had all these thoughts and he's just going to throw the last couple of thoughts that he couldn't fit elsewhere into this chapter. It's just kind of a catch-all. Here's the last remaining things that I wanted to say and I I couldn't fit them in other chapters, so I'm just going to make this one. It can feel like that because if you read through it, it... is, it's a little labor intensive. <laughs> Read all 20 verses and it's hard to just instantly know I know exactly what Solomon is saying. And for me, it's the same way. Although I will say that this chapter I think is one of the best proof cases in terms of determining the authorship of Ecclesiastes. We talked about that when we talked about Ecclesiastes chapter 1. That some scholars are not sure which parts of Ecclesiastes are written by Solomon and whatnot. Uh, If you just look at Ecclesiastes 10, you can tell. Because there's so many, actually, we're going to look at, that appear in Proverbs that are in this chapter. That are echoed back back in the Proverbs of Solomon. I say that because, anyways, that sometimes I think that we can think that Proverbs themselves sort of mess up structure. That this is just an interruption in Solomon's thought process. That this is sort of, it's there and it's messing up the flow. That Solomon has this good flow of narrative that he's going through and he's talking about all the different things under the sun and these Proverbs are just there and they're just kind of inserted here and we're not really sure why. But actually, Proverbs uh, themselves, the, the, the art of a proverb, so to speak, as Solomon is here implementing them into his book, are, are there to enhance what he has just said. You'll notice, if you have like perhaps a more modern translation, you'll notice that there's passages that are block narrative, and then there's other passages that look like they're poem, and those are the Proverbs, so to speak. And those are there to enhance what was just said. Solomon uses them to sometimes supplement or illustrate, even in roundabout ways, what he has just talked about. They are there to enhance your understanding of the truth that is just stated, even if you have to do that through a perhaps confusing illustration that you have to really think about. Solomon is wanting you, he's wanting his readers, his audience, to sit 
and to think about what he has just said. The truth that he has just so iterated. He wants you to sit and really think about it. Chew on it. Get at the meat of it. Get at the, the truth of what he is saying. And, and so to, I say that because to, coming to Ecclesiastes 10. You have to keep what he has just ended Ecclesiastes chapter 9 with. Look at the last couple of verses of Ecclesiastes 9. I think this will give us a little clue I think. As to what he's going to sort of amplify throughout chapter 10. Look at the last couple of verses. Notice he says verse 16. Then I said wisdom is better than strength. Nevertheless, the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are not heard. Words of the wise spoken quietly should be heard, rather than the shout of a ruler of fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Here, as he's been going through Ecclesiastes chapter 9, and he's going to enhance this in Ecclesiastes chapter 10, he's stating this, it should might be obvious assertion, but he's stating that wisdom is still better than folly. Wisdom, living your life wisely in the time that we have been given, is still better than squandering our lives away on folly and foolishness and madness and frustration and the vanities of life under the sun. Wisdom is still better. It's still better. It still gives you a more full life, a more richer experience of life. Even when it doesn't seem like that. Even when the unpredictabilities of life make it feel like wisdom is not worth it. That wisdom is just it's too difficult to actually get. And actually living wisely is predicated on this thing that we, we talked about last week. Ecclesiastes 9 verse 5 where he says, The living know that they will die. The truly wise person keeps that in mind. And that's what allows him to live a rich and a full life in the present under the sun. You see, that's what he's going to reaffirm. Through 20 odd proverbs here in chapter 10. These series of truth statements. Which actually if you read them and you have to keep this in mind. He's sort of holding intention, folly and wisdom. A life of foolishness and madness and a life of wisdom that is difficult and, and it's a struggle. But he's keeping them in tension and wanting you to see exactly what he's just stated. Wisdom is still better. Wisdom for all of the frustrations it itself feels is still better. It still allows for a richer, fuller life. That's what he's seeing. I think his objective in chapter 10 is seeing wisdom's value. Seeing wisdom's worth. And I think he does this through three quick lessons I want to bring you through as we walk through chapter 10. That allows us to see, I think, the value of wisdom under the sun as we walk our way through this life. So first of all, in the first couple of verses, I want us to notice wisdom's vocation. Wisdom's vocation. Look at verse 1 again. He begins this chapter by, as Pastor Nathan mentioned, using a most striking image to explain what he's talking about. Dead flies, he said, putrefy the perfumer's ointment and cause it to give off a foul odor. So does a little folly to one respected for wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart is at his right hand, but a fool's heart is at his left. 
even when a fool walks along the way, he lacks wisdom. And he shows everyone that he is a fool. Solomon here. He's using this illustration of this dead fly caught in a perfume that is very expensive, that has a highly esteemed value. And yet that perfume is ruined by the presence of that fly. He's using this. You can see, I think, the point he's trying to make very easily. That a small amount of folly disfigures, ruins, and wrecks however much wisdom you may have accumulated. However much of a reputation that you may have garnered for, as he says here, wisdom and honor, it can be wrecked by a small amount of folly. The amount of a dead fly. This man, he describes here, this man who is respected for wisdom and honor... He's renowned. He's revered. He has a reputation and a resume of being knowledgeable, of being wise, of being very astute. People are coming him for sage advice. And his whole, his whole reputation is ruined by dead flies, by the presence of a little folly. I can't help but think that Solomon is here giving a little bit of an autobiography of himself. That this wise man of such renown, of such wisdom, of such honor, of wealth and kingdoms and all kinds of power that he could ever want or imagine. (laughs) And what do we know about Solomon? That he lived a life of folly, of hedonism, of pleasure for himself. His reputation of wisdom is dashed, is ruined by just a little amount of folly. By just the presence of a dead fly. And you see, uh, this, th- that, those two words there in the Hebrew, little folly, keep in mind what it's actually saying. It, it, it's actually, uh, the Hebrew word conveys just a tiny amount, a smidgen. <laughs> it's a very small portion of folly, he says, can ruin this man's reputation. And we know this to be true. That's all that's necessary for your, uh, for your character to be sabotaged. Just a small, a small amount of folly. You can see this in all kinds of forms throughout our lifetime. I, as a, a preacher, sometimes I, I mostly think of what Solomon here is, is keeping in view in terms of those pastors, God bless them. God keep them who have fallen into folly. Sadly, there's several examples of this in our lifetimes. Pastors who are otherwise faithful, renowned preachers of the word. Who are giving their their lives for the furtherance of the gospel. And all of that can be ruined in a moment of folly. Of giving in to madness. And what do we know about them? (laughs) Their reputation is dashed. For all of their ministry, all of their uh, years of preaching the word, it can oftentimes be lost to time and entirely forgotten because of their decisions to fall into folly. The small amount of foolishness can outweigh. It outweighs whatever reputation you have for wisdom and honor. One writer, he puts it very, uh, very cleverly. He says, ketchup on a white shirt is highly visible. <laughs> I can relate to that. <laughs> Natalie can attest. Red sauce and white shirts don't mix too well in my home. <laughs> But you can see the point he's making. 
It stands out. It's highly visible. It's something that you can immediately notice. It's devastating to me whenever I hear these stories of pastors who are exposed for their folly. That's tragic. The repercussions of their decision outweigh whatever wisdom they have proclaimed from the pulpit. And then I immediately think, there but for the grace of God go I. Not, I, I pray not to have some sort of mind that condemns them or anything like that. I would love to give them a hug and compassion them because I know that this folly isn't foreign to me. It shouldn't be foreign to you. We shouldn't think that I'm so far above what they have, that, what they have displayed. These words are a warning. Psalm is warning us of the vocation that wisdom plays. Just like a dead fly can ruin an otherwise invaluable perfume, so too can folly wreck lives of faith. Can ruin them in an instant. Thus, the vocation of wisdom, the purpose of it, the occupation of it, is to safeguard our lives from such ruin. Wisdom is better in that it safeguards lives from being ruined and wrecked and devastated by folly. Wisdom is a protecting agent in which our minds are defended from being steered into all kinds of unsavory directions. Notice what he says in verse 2. A wise man's heart is at his right hand, but a fool's heart is at his left And even when a fool walks along the way, he lacks wisdom and he shows everyone that he is a fool. By right and left, Solomon is here suggesting, keeping in view sort of the ends which await the wise man and the foolish man. Which is to say they're completely divergent. It's like parallel lines. You hold them in balance But if you just ever so slightly steer this one line off, they're going to end in vastly different locations. And it takes just a small degree. And that line will end somewhere else. Completely different. These otherwise parallel lines, which have the same end point, are going to end up in different places through just the small amount of folly. (laughs) There's just a smidgen of ruin. Psalm is saying wisdom safeguards you. That's its vocation. That's its job. That's the job of wisdom. is to safeguard your heart and your mind from being directed into a place that will end in your own destruction and your own ruin. Actually... Uh, let me read you this verse. It comes from Proverbs chapter 10 and verses 8 and 9. He says, the wise, this is Solomon, the wise in heart will receive commands, but a prating fool will fall. He who walks with integrity walks securely, but he who perverts his ways will become known. He will be found out, as it says in verse 3, that everyone will see his foolishness. It's brandished very easily for us to see. By just a small amount of folly. One writer, he says, wisdom guides the nearest way to our own security, but folly is the surest road to our own ruin. Here you can see, this is what Solomon is here indicating. 
Wisdom is a safeguarding agent that secures us on our way under the sun. As we're walking through this life. Securing us from making decisions. (laughs) Under a small amount of folly. And the point is that this life under the sun is best lived when it is kept by the wisdom of God. Secured, guarded by the wisdom of God. I'm reminded of that verse, Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, where Solomon, you might know this verse, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. Keep your heart from veering too far off one small degree, and you'll end up in ruin, end up in destruction. This is the practicality of wisdom. Notice verse 10. That he, he uses another striking illustration. Notice verse 10 where he says, If the axe is dull and one does not sharpen the edge, then he must use more strength. But wisdom brings success. It's a striking picture again. Another man, he's using this axe to strike wood, cut firewood perhaps. <laughs> If he's a wise man, he will keep the edge of that axe sharp. It doesn't mean that there's no work. It doesn't mean that there's no labor or effort that's involved. It just means that it's a little bit more manageable. (laughs) He's a little bit more efficient with each blow that he strikes into that wood. It's slightly more efficient than if you're going at it with a dull blade. (laughs) Such is wisdom. Still leads to a life that is perhaps sometimes infused with frustration. (laughs) We can't escape that. We can't escape all of the vanities of life under the sun. We've been noticing that. But wisdom makes it just that much more manageable. Because it's wisdom from God. Which safeguards our hearts and our minds with the power of God. Wisdom's vocation. Notice though, jump down to verse 11. We have wisdom's vocation. But also notice here, secondly, wisdom's voice. Wisdom's voice, because more than just what wisdom looks like, in that it safeguards our lives to keep up reputations which honor the Lord, which honors God. Solomon here observes what wisdom sounds like. Notice verse 11. A serpent may bite when it is not charmed. The babbler is no different. The words of a wise man's mouth are gracious, but the lips of a fool shall swallow him up. The words of his mouth begin with foolishness, and the end of his talk is raving madness. A fool also multiplies words, and no man knows what is to be. Who can tell him what will be after him? The labor of fools wearies them, for they do not even know how to get to the city. The foolish man's actions certainly reveal the folly by which his heart is guided and directed, by which he is being led throughout this life. That's what Solomon was indicating by by verse 3, where he talks about how everyone sees that he's a fool, even as he walks along the way. But he can also be noticed by his lips, by the words that are coming out of his mouth, because he is consumed by his words. He is, as it says there, he is swallowed up by his own words, by his own mouth. And from beginning to end, the words that are coming out are nothing but foolishness. And I love how it says there, in raving madness. The more he talks, 
the more he's revealing his foolishness. The more he's spewing and rambling and as it says they're babbling about things that he does not know, that he cannot know, that he has no insight into. But he's rambling on and on about them as if he does know. That's the indication that we get from verses 14 and 15 where he talks again. We, he's used this, uh, this idea before that no one can know as he says, who can tell him what will be after him? Who knows what lies ahead? Who knows what is ahead of us in days of the future? No one. The fool, though, rambles on about pretending he knows what lies in those days. He speaks in raving madness about what exists in things that he cannot know. In days that he has no business delving into. Remember that illustration we used about how... uh, it was that quote from a writer, and he was talking about how we are all just uh, 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 gentlemen with canes tapping our canes in the fog. That's what it means to live in this life. And that we who pretend that we know think that we can see through that fog. Such as I, the picture I get of this fool who, as it says there, who doesn't even know the way to the city. <laughs> he pretends he does. He pretends he knows what lies ahead. In the future, in the days that will come about. But he does not. He does not know the way. But that doesn't stop his words. Actually, it says in verse, uh, where is that? Verse uh, 14, a fool multiplies his words. (laughs) This actually makes him talk more. He's trying to prove his own wisdom by trying to talk more and more. And he looks ahead and pretends to be wise about things that he cannot know. I think Solomon is sort of describing the person that we would call a know-it-all. A person who, has, who is an expert on every subject and has a solution for every problem. Large or small. Global problems. National problems. Local problems. He can see ahead and he knows. (laughs) He knows what the issues are and how to resolve them. And in that way you can see how Solomon would use that in, in, in another striking portrait back in verse 11. Where he talks about this serpent who's being charmed. Who snaps and bites and strikes before it is charmed. And then he says the babbler is no different. He doesn't see the present He doesn't see the moment. His words are dangerous. The fool here is this one who doesn't sit and rest with the vocation of wisdom on his heart and on his mind and on his mouth. And speaks before he thinks. Speaks before the spirit moves. And how opposite this is of the wise man's words. Look at verse 12. The words of a wise man's mouth. Are gracious. They're gracious. They are full of grace, is what those words mean. The wise man's words, under the occupation of God's wisdom that is on his heart and on his mind, is guided by his lips to speak words of nothing but grace. This is a theme throughout the Proverbs. Go with me. Listen to some of these verses. The Proverbs chapter 10. Look at verses 19 through 21. 
Solomon has everywhere spoken to the nature of the wise and the foolish man's mouth and how it reveals their heart. Look at verse 19 of chapter 10. In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. But he who restrains his lips is wise. The tongue of the righteous is choice silver. The heart of the wicked is worth little. And the lips of the righteous feed many. But fools die for lack of wisdom. Go with me to Proverbs chapter 15 verse 2. Notice what he says again here. The tongue of the wise uses knowledge rightly. But the mouth of fools pours forth foolishness. It just spews off his tongue. Lastly, go with me to chapter 16. Look at verse 22. Solomon again. Using this incredible illustration of the lips to understand the heart of fools and of the wise. He says, verse 22 of chapter 16. Understanding is a wellspring of life to him who has it. But the correction of fools is folly. The heart of the wise teaches his mouth and adds learning to his lips. Pleasant words are like a honeycomb. Sweetness to the soul and health to the bones. The words... Of the wise are gracious words which uplift with strength and which provide sweetness and satisfaction to those around them. They aren't words which look ahead and try to peer through the fog and pretend that they know what exists out there. Words which are dangerous like a serpent's strike. They are words that are gracious which understand the times and the seasons and the moments. The wise man understands That the way forward, that the way ahead in life under the sun is dark and dim. And that he cannot see what the future holds. But that is okay. The wise man says that's okay. Because the wisdom of God informs him that the way forward can only be perceived rightly by looking directly in front of him. By looking what's at his feet. That's how he gets through the fog. Looking ahead, he will get lost. Going here, there, and yon. Oh, to the right or to the left. He will get lost. He will get diverged into a wrong path. But looking where he's going, he can make decisions. He can live wisely. This is the grace of the lips of the wise man. But like this fool, sometimes we spread more folly and madness (laughs) When we pretend to know what lies ahead and we get lost. As we pretend to have this insight and knowledge. Here Solomon is encouraging those who are reading these words. Spend your present. Not uh, proclaiming what lies ahead. But speaking to the present and invoking grace in that moment. Speaking to someone's need. Speaking to someone's casualty. Coming alongside a brother or sister and giving them gracious words in the moment. Those are words of the wise man. And this is the best testimony that you or I could ever leave. Is understanding that this moment that we have. Regardless of what lies ahead in 2021 that I don't even want to think about. This moment is one in which the wise are speaking words of grace. 
He's saying that this is the best occasion for it. Paul echoes this whole entire sentiment all the way in Colossians chapter 4. You listen to these words. The Apostle Paul says, Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one, that you may know how to live and walk in the way. Wisely season your speech with grace. What wisdom looks like. It's what wisdom sounds like. It guards our hearts and lives and our lips. But notice thirdly, wisdom's vulnerability. Wisdom's vulnerability because going back to Ecclesiastes chapter 10, Solomon, what he wants you to see... Again, as he's been exploring and examining, is, to, is you to see that this wisdom that you perhaps can uh, exemplify, that you can live out in your life, is not one that should be seen as some sort of ultimate savior. That if I can just be some sort of sage and wise guru, that I'll know how to live through life. That this wisdom... Itself, too, is still prone to faults and foolishness and frustration. It's still susceptible to those things which lie under the sun. And notice he employs a couple of proverbs to get at that point. So you don't put wisdom on a pedestal where it should not be. Notice verse 5. He here talks about from verses 5 through verse 9, I think, about the, the vulnerability of inequity, of, of wrong outcomes, of how life just seems unfair, a topic that he's noticed before. Look at verse 5. There is an evil I have seen under the sun, and as an error proceeding from the ruler, folly is set at great dignity while the rich sit in a lowly place. I have seen servants on horses, while princes walk on the ground like servants. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and whoever breaks through a wall will be bitten by a serpent. He who quarries stones may be hurt by them, and he who splits wood may be endangered by it. These words bring to mind the unpredictability of life. How sometimes people get put into office that we don't think that they belong there. People are promoted ahead of us. People have outcomes that are vastly different than what we have given. We're the ones who are, as he says, they're digging this pit and yet we're falling into it. As It's reminiscent of what he says back in chapter 9 verse 11. That the race is not to the swift nor the battle to the strong. There's this sense of, of fate that overwhelms this life under the sun. And sometimes wisdom cannot always perceive through why that is. There's an inverted order of things in this life. Life, it, it doesn't, as we've noticed last week, and I won't rehash this, but life doesn't always operate according to how we think it should operate. Our rules and formulas for how things should work is often rarely how it works out. And that frustrates us. That frustrated Solomon. There are things, though, that remain outside of our wisdom. But as we have noted, and as Solomon is here encouraging you here that are sitting here this morning, that for all of those inequities, for all those, those frustrations, those unpredictabilities of life, that ought not us to uh, cause us to abandon the wisdom of God 
He's saying it's vulnerable to it. But don't abandon it. Actually, I think what he's going to get at is that this ought to make us trust all the more in the providence of God. Not our reasonings, not our wisdom, not our sort of sage insights into the future or anything like that, but trust all the more in His providence, which allows us to be wise in the present. Wisdom is vulnerable to inequity, but notice verses 16 through 20, because wisdom is also vulnerable to immaturity. Notice verse 16. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Blessed are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobles and your princes feast at the proper time. For strength and not for drunkenness. Because of laziness, the building decays and through idleness of hands, the house leaks. A feast is made for laughter and wine makes merry, but money answers everything. Do not curse the king, even in your thought. Do not curse the rich, even in your bedroom. For a bird of the air may carry your voice and a bird in flight may tell the matter. You can see he's using a lot of pictures. This is another uh, instance of this idea of Proverbs evoking a picture in our mind to have us sit and think and ruminate about what it means. He's describing two kingdoms. One is ruled by, as he says, a child. And he says, woe to you, kingdom, when your king, your ruler, is a youth. And the other, he says, this other kingdom that he compares with this, blessed are you when your king is the son of nobles. It's the picture of one who is wise, who is being steered in the proper way. And the picture, I think, is clear. The land whose king is a child is being steered by immaturity. He's ruled by his passions. You can get this description of this child king as he's one who is lazy and he's full of idleness and full of drunkenness. He's just ruled by everything that feels good to him. And rather than attending to serious matters that deserve his attention, as he says in verse 18, he's just spending his life carousing and complaining. He's immature. He thinks that he perhaps knows better or could do better. (laughs) He's a miniature ruler who is frustrated by his presence, his present moment. And instead of thinking wisely about it, he is getting frustrated by it. And instead he's trying to drown out the noise of it through drunkenness and idleness and laziness, through partying and carousing. This is the immature ruler. And he compares that though. Blessed are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobles and your princes feast at the proper time. Opposite of that, the one who is wise is the one who is steady and poised and calm, understanding the present season. Notice back in verse 4, he describes the same sort of sentiment. Ecclesiastes 10.4, if the spirit of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your post. For conciliation pacifies great offenses. The wise one isn't in a hurry to flee and abandons his place. It isn't in a rush to make quick decisions based on its passions. It doesn't let the circumstances speak all of the wisdom that he knows in this present life. Instead, he understands this moment for what it is. 
And he is poised. And as he says, he is conciliatory. He is calm in that moment. Wisdom is vulnerable to that. But yes, wisdom speaks calmness in this season. Describes this moment, as it says, this proper time. As one in which God alone reigns supreme. He is the supreme ruler of all of this. And wisdom rightly understood is this ever deepening knowledge and acceptance that God is God and we are not God. Goes all the way back to chapter 2. I think it's chapter 2. It's the fundamental assertion, I think, of Ecclesiastes. He is God, and we are not God. And we do not have the authority or the right or the sovereignty to pretend that we can make our own meaning, that we can make our own happiness, that we can make our own satisfaction. Anything about that, whether it be through pleasure or through circumstances or through accomplishments or achievements or possessions or even our own wisdom and intellect, all of that will crumble and fail. Because we are not God. He is God and His ways are better than our ways. His wisdom is better than our wisdom. You see, I think what Solomon is here saying is that wisdom itself is not a sufficient savior. It helps us like the sharpened axe. It helps us manage this life of frustration and folly a little bit better. But we still cannot escape this life under the sun. When, it was, when this creation was broken by Adam and Eve's sin. Folly came in and it has always been infested with sin and folly and recklessness. And it always will be. Until one comes back. Until the great king comes and returns. You see, to get through this life of folly, one greater than Solomon is necessary. This is the gospel. Because in Matthew 12, 42, which are incredible words, Jesus Christ declares what? That one greater than Solomon is indeed here. One wiser than Solomon, the great wise king, has arrived. It is him, the Savior, the Christ, Jesus in the flesh. He is the wisdom that we have so longed for. He is the wisdom Jesus has come to be the wisdom that answers all of our folly. He is the one that we need. He is wisdom in the flesh. The perfection of God in the form of a man. And he's the fulfillment of all the wisdom that we need on our way through this life under the sun. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 30 says this. But of him you are in Christ Jesus. Listen. Who became for us wisdom from God. Is this Jesus? Colossians 2.3, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The answer, it might seem so matter of fact, too easy. The answer to our folly, to our frustration, (laughs) it always comes back to Jesus. 
He's our guard. He is our guide. He is our wisdom that guides us and guards us through all of life. Through all of the the various pits that we can fall into. The ditches that we can get ourselves in. The various uh, things that we allow into our lives. He is the wisdom that answers it all. In Christ alone. Our hope is found. Our wisdom is found. In Christ alone. And guess what? This one who is the all wise king. The all wise fulfillment of all of that. He has come and put to death. All of your folly. All of our foolish decisions. All of our decisions that we make. In fits of madness and rage. The words that we speak and wish we could get back. The decisions we make when we know we are making a bad decision. He pays for all of that. Actually, let me rephrase. He has paid for all of that. It's a done deal. Signed, sealed, delivered. Jesus says, it is finished. (laughs) He has paid for all of our foolishness and madness and recklessness and sinfulness. And he comes and he says to us, I am the one greater than Solomon. You think that you can have life out there. I am your life. The way, the truth and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by me, the one who is true wisdom. To ask then, do you have this wisdom is to ask, do you know this Christ? Do you? Do you know this Jesus who is the wisdom of God which allays all of our fears and faithfully guides us on our way in this life of frustration? And this life of vanity, this life of great turmoil, yes. But a life that is led by wisdom embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. Wisdom for our way means entrusting our life to this one who is the way, who is our wisdom. It is this Jesus, the Savior. Let us pray.